Did you know, beloved listeners, that the Asian region dominates the world's fishing industry and production of fish? It has the largest fishing fleet, about two-thirds of the global total. And a UN report last year found that Asia produces 70% of the world's fish for consumption. But that globally invaluable industry faces uh, several climate-related threats. Professor Steve Whittacombe is a world leader in ocean acidification and he will join us from Lisbon where he's attending the 2023 World Ocean Summit. He's from uh, Plymouth Marine Laboratory in the UK and is the Director of Science and Deputy Chief Executive. Oh, and he's also an advisor to Back to Blue, an initiative of The Economist and the Nippon Foundation, which works on the pressing issues faced by the ocean. And Professor Quentin Hanich is making a return appearance on the Little Wireless program. Quentin's back in Wollongong after one of his trips around Asia, working primarily with Korean and Japanese fishing organisations. Quentin leads the Fisheries Governance Research Program at the Australian National Centre for Ocean Resources and Security. So while... uh, while Stephen Whittacombe waits in the wings, Quentin, can you give us a broad sketch of the Asian fishing industry? It ranges from the very tiny to the very large, doesn't it? It's hugely diverse. That's totally correct. So you've got everything from small-scale subsistence fisheries that are just basically feeding the family right up to some of the world's largest fishing vessels fishing in far distant oceans. It's hugely diverse. And the industry is a combination of capture fishing, that's from boats, and aquaculture or fish farms, which we've often discussed on the program. Yeah, it's really important to remember that because we've hit the peak of world capture fisheries. You know, we're basically fished and fished and fished, and that's increased over the years and the decades. Um, So we're now basically at the full peak for global fisheries. Um, Most of our fisheries are actually fished at their very, very limit, and we have approximately about a third of the global fisheries that are now overfished. Um, So we need to rebuild those overfished which stocks, which means we need to reduce the fishing effort to do so. Um, So we're increasingly depending now on aquaculture, which at the global level produces about 120 million tonnes. And we've seen that increasing everywhere, but particularly in China, which is by far the largest aquaculture producer. So with populations growing, fish production has to increase. So, uh, Quentin, where we in Australia are largely focused on land production of food, many Asian countries and communities are very focused on the ocean. Yeah, it's an interesting challenge. I used to work for the Australian Aid Program and a lot of our aid program when I first worked there a long time ago was always agriculturally focused when we talked about food security and that just reflected our terrestrial continental background. But when you go to places like Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, you know, Japan, Korea and China, um, you're looking at communities um, that have been very much outwardly focused. The ocean is the place that feeds you. It's not just a recreational activity. It's very much part of your life in terms of the subsistence and livelihoods that it gives you. And traditionally, our waters, Australia's waters, are not nearly as rich and plentiful as Asia's. No, we lack these rivers, these useful rivers that 
pour or plant nutrients into the water. So if you look at our fisheries, I think the total of all of our fisheries in Australia is probably equivalent to the big New Zealand fishery um, for hokey, for example. Um, and then you compare that with Indonesia, that catches millions and millions of tons just within the Indonesian waters alone. So we have a very small fishery in comparison with these other fisheries. Uh, and then a lot of these Asian fisheries that we're talking about don't just occur inside their own waters, they also travel far, far away to far distant oceans. And those ones we call distant water fishing fleets. Now, this is why climate change impacts on the ocean will be, and in some cases already are, being mostly felt in the Asia-Pacific region. Yeah, we have a variety of different impacts. Um, so, and we can talk about the sort of the technical different types of impacts like ocean acidification, but at the end of the day, they will impact in different ways on artisanal communities living off coral reef fisheries that are suffering from sea level temperature rises um, and coral bleaching events, um, right through to distant tuna fisheries in far different oceans that are now changing their migratory paths and changing their productivity levels according to different seasonal variations. So climate change is impacting on fisheries globally in different ways in different regions. And given the significance of fisheries in Asia, that's obviously a massive impact on Asia. Now, just before we go to Steve, uh, give us a bit more of a sense of what's at stake. Please tell me about the Coral Triangle. Okay, so one of the most amazingly biodiverse and productive uh, and really, you know, wealthy um, regions in the world when you talk about biodiversity and life is the Coral Triangle. And that includes Indonesia, Philippines, Papua New Guinea, and a few other countries around there. And you're really talking about an amazing amount of the world's biodiversity, you know, just simply the sheer numbers of different species of, of animals and, you know, marine life. And we must remember that it's not just about the marine life, it's about the people who live in those regions too. Um, so when we talk about managing fisheries, whether it's for climate change or whether it's for other um, concerns and impacts, we're not managing the fish. They don't pay any attention to us at all. We're managing the people. So we're trying to manage the impacts of the people in a way that reflects their livelihoods and food security concerns, that is consultative and engaging, uh, and that ensures that we achieve equitable outcomes. As the region is already a warm water temperature, as it gets warmer and coral bleaching occurs, I guess the fish need to move. Yep. So if you're sitting on the east coast of Australia, particularly down the southeast somewhere, you might be seeing warm water you know, fish species migrating down the East Australian current and you'll see different species now coming down to southeast Australia that you might not have seen before. If you live on the equator, of course, and it heats up, those fish are now leaving you. They're not coming towards you like you might be in the temperate waters. So when you increase the water temperatures to a certain level, you start decreasing the productivity of the fish and they either migrate somewhere else or they decline in productivity. And when you're at the equator, the only way they can go is away. I'd like to welcome Steve Whittacombe, who's been uh, waiting patiently. Uh, Steve, you're... Great interest is acidification, and I understand that that's only recently become widely understood. Well, it, yes, yes, indeed, ocean acidification is certainly one of my key areas of interest, um, and I, I would say it, it's it's not just recently become understood. I think 
The issue around it has been understood for several decades now, but the evidence of ocean acidification happening and the impacts it has is perhaps only recently coming to the fore. It is one of those um, changes in our ocean which has been relatively difficult to uh, monitor, uh, but the expertise is now growing and, and data sets are now appearing to show that ocean acidification is not only happening in all of our oceans, but also is starting to happen more quickly. So the rate at which the ocean are changing is much faster now than it was 20 years ago. The CO2 we produce from burning fossil fuels goes into the atmosphere but doesn't stay there. I didn't realise that it goes into the ocean. Yes, around 25% of all the carbon dioxide we produce every year that we send up into the atmosphere, then that makes its way into uh, into the upper ocean. Uh, And it does that by reacting with the seawater and dissolving, and then also, in doing so, changes the chemistry. It reacts with water molecules to create a weak acid called carbonic acid. And that is the the chemical that's driving this uh, this phenomenon called ocean acidification. So the oceans have taken about 90% of the extra CO2 humans have generated, so they've been doing their very best to help us. Uh, they have been doing their utmost to help us. And actually, it's, the, it's a natural process. That is the way in which carbon cycles around the planet from the geology into the atmosphere, back into the oceans, and then creating rocks again at the bottom of the, of the sea. Um, but what's happening now is they just can't do it quickly enough for the rate at which we're putting CO2 into the atmosphere. And not only are they they try their best to, to help us, but the, the more we impact upon them, the harder we make that job for them. So they're really paying the price, aren't they, Steve? Now, CO2 reacts with water molecules to create a weak acid called carbonic. What's it do? So what do we do? Well, first of all, we need to stop emitting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. That's, uh, that, that's, uh, that's our first uh, um, our first step in in trying to address this problem. But there are other things we can also do. There are natural processes and natural habitats, things we call blue carbon habitats, so seagrasses and mangroves, uh, salt marshes, which which trap carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and lock them away into into the sediment, lock it away into the sediment, so they sequester that carbon for us. So it's important that we protect and restore those habitats and allow them to do that natural process. There are other things, uh, other processes at work in the open ocean where phytoplankton fix the carbon dioxide that's available and then they, they turn it into organic matter and that filters down into the deep ocean. Again, we need to make sure we keep and maintain the healthy ocean ecosystems to allow them to do that. There, then finally, there's, a, there, there's adaptation and, and uh, resilience. Uh, we heard we had a talk about the importance of human communities, but we need to make sure that we, we create communities that are resilient to the changes that are coming. So in essence, what we're looking to have to do is we need to stop the carbon dioxide production. We need to protect those parts of the natural ecosystem that naturally sequester carbon dioxide. But then we also have to build uh, resilience and create ad- adaptation strategies to deal with it. Anyone with a swimming pool knows about the pH scale that, you know, measures acidity. And uh, the pH scale that you point out is very sensitive. It's like the Richter scale for earthquakes. A tiny movement 
can really matter. Yes, absolutely. It's just like the Richter scale. It's on it's on a, a logarithmic scale. So one unit on the pH scale represents 10 times more acidity. So even changes which look fairly small in terms of the number of units that are changing have an enormous effect. I'm talking to Professor Stephen Whittacombe, Director of Science at the Plymouth Marine Laboratory. Now, you point out that uh, carbonate is the main ingredient in shells and coral and that coral reefs should be uh, seen as, well, tower blocks of calcium carbonate. Yeah, in essence, a, a coral reef, uh, the living part of a coral reef is just a thin skin that lies over the top of a, a complex uh, structure of calcium carbonate. So they provide all these structural habitats for lots of other species, which is why they are so great at, uh, at um, providing biodiversity. Steve, I know you don't see yourself as a, an expert in Asian fishing, but I'm guessing there are some pretty obvious likely impacts. The impacts in Asia could be could be enormous. Uh, not only are natural habitats, natural blue carbon habitats, such as um, mangroves and also the coral reefs, are important nursery grounds for commercial species, but a lot of the aquaculture is dependent on shellfish. Uh, so we know that um, scallops and um, mussels and oysters and also crabs and lobsters and shrimps and prawns, they all build calcium carbonate shells for protection. And it becomes very difficult to build those shells uh, when you are living in a, in, a, in a marine environment which is becoming more acidic. So we, I understand that we've seen this in a few places, including initially an oyster farm at Whiskey Creek in Washington State. Steve, so to be really clear, we're looking at a future impact on the Asian fishing industry. Yes, we are. Uh, it's, um, it, it's an anomaly of the... The, way, the physics in the way in which carbon dioxide dissolves in seawater, that carbon dioxide prefers to, to uh, dissolve in, in cold waters. So uh, it's the polar areas uh, and the northern temperate regions which are, are feeling the impact first. But make no mistake, these impacts are coming to more tropical and um, warmer areas very, very shortly. Back to you, Quentin. The tentacles of the Asian fishing industry are, are long and complicated. So it's so interconnected with the world economy. Thus, a problem in Asia will be very widely felt. Well, it's it's interesting also what you paint as Asian fisheries. You know, for example, um, a Korean persainer, a very, very large industrial fishing vessel. So a Korean persainer will be catching skipjack tuna in the waters of Kiribati in the middle of the Pacific and it will transship that to a refrigerated cargo vessel which will then be landed in Thailand and Southeast Asia and canned in a cannery and then exported to Australia and we'll eat it and we'll see the label says made in Thailand. But it was actually caught in the Pacific and Kiribati would view it as being caught in Kiribati's waters and it manages the fishery and it pays for that management um, and it depends on the licensing revenue to build schools and hospitals. But the way our global systems report that is as a Thai or Korean fishery. So this, this regionalism sometimes isn't particularly accurate. And that exists everywhere. I mean, you'll see Chinese longliners in the Indian Ocean 
um, Spanish fishing vessels in the Pacific. So it's a very, very interconnected, globally traded uh, resource. Quentin China is, of course, a, a giant in fishing. Uh, I know you're familiar with what's going on there. They must be very worried about the impact of climate change. Yeah, so you're seeing China take this very seriously because not only are they a, a very important distant water fishing fleet, i.e. they have vessels that travel tens of thousands of miles around the world, but they also have very, very important fisheries in their coastal waters that are critically important for livelihoods and food security for themselves. Um, so they've been managing their fisheries increasingly more for the last couple of decades, putting in place moratoriums and different management measures um, to try to restrict these impacts and improve their own resilience to climate change. And that's also sometimes why we see some of these fleets that have effectively been pushed out of their home waters by moratoriums and are now fishing like we saw a couple of years ago in the North Korean EZ. Um, so China's significant, but we can't just see them as a problem. We also have to work with them as a solution. And back to you, Steve Whittacombe, it's an irony, isn't it, that there's not much the Asian fishing industry can do about uh, CO2 emissions? Well, not so much in terms of the CO2 emissions, although actually uh, all industries can do something about CO2 emissions and be part of the uh, part of the solution. Uh, the maritime industry and shipping in particular is... Uh, on a very strong uh, agenda to decarbonise the, the the fishing the fishing fleet, but also the transport fleet as well. So I think all, all marine based industries can have a can have a role to play. Meanwhile, I should point out to the listener that you're one of your many hats as your co-chair of the Global Ocean Acid, Acidification Observing Network, and I know that that's uh, of crucial importance. Gentlemen, I thank you. Professor Quentin Hanich leads the Fisheries Governance Research Program at the Australian National Centre for Ocean Resources and Security at the University of Wollongong. And thank you, Professor Stephen Whitt Director of Science and Deputy Chief Exec at Plymouth Marine Laboratories and advisor to Back to Blue, that initiative of The Economist and the Nippon Foundation. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.